This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Well, President Biden says donated Pfizer shots will start to ship globally in August. He announced the U.S. will begin shipping a half billion donated doses of Pfizer coronavirus vaccines to countries in, quote, dire need in August. That making good on a promise to lead the global campaign against the pandemic. Joining us now on This and More is Dr. Amish Adalja, senior scholar and infectious disease physician at the Center for Health Security at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He joins us on the phone from Pittsburgh. Dr. Adalja, it is great to have you back on the show. Uh, I want to start with this half a billion donated doses of Pfizer vaccine. It it sounds like a lot, and to be sure, it is a massive number. But given that the, the, the globe needs billions to get past this pandemic, isn't it still just somewhat, I don't want to say a drop in the bucket, but not quite enough? Well, it, it's a step in the right direction, and there are going to be more donations, more purchases of vaccines by the developing world, the COVAX program, other organizations getting vaccines into people. But the more the more vaccines, even if it's not enough, the more that are getting into people's arms, the better the global trajectory of the pandemic looks, especially if you're trying to vaccinate healthcare workers, high-risk individuals. I think this is a significant uh, a significant donation and, and is something that would be very welcome uh, in those countries. Now, do- availability of vaccine is certainly one thing, but the administration of vaccine, especially a vaccine that has to be stored in a way that the Pfizer mRNA vaccine has to be stored, is a completely different thing. Uh, what do these countries need to be doing ahead of time to make sure that they can actually have a campaign that effectively can administer this vaccine? The first thing they have to do is make sure that they can ensure the cold chain. The Pfizer vaccine has, as you said, really onerous storage requirements. So they have to make sure that they can actually handle that vaccine. Then it's about logistically figuring out where you're going to vaccinate people. Is this going to be at vaccine centers? Are there going to be, is it going to be at healthcare centers? Are there going to be other places where this vaccine is going to be available? You also have to think, do you have enough syringes? Do you have enough needles? Do you have the alcohol swabs? Do you have enough personnel to actually administer the shots? All of that planning has to be put into place when you're planning something like this. And, and that's going to be really important for those countries to, to, pre, to, to kind of pre-position and be ready to go when they get the vaccine. Now, I'm, I'm, we've talked to you a lot in the past here on Bloomberg Radio and on Quick Take about variants of concern that have developed around the world. And one narrative that has emerged over the last few months as the U.S. has been vaccinated increasingly, but other countries have not, is the idea that we're not on the other side of this pandemic until the entire world is. And it's not just an economic story, but it's also a story of public health. And the concern, worst case scenario, was that some sort of variant develops and it goes kind of unchecked in a country that is not completely vaccinated or does not have a high level of vaccine. And that variant then can get past uh, the vaccines that have been approved for emergency use authorization in certain countries. And I wonder if there's any evidence at this point here we are, June 10th, that that could still happen or that that has happened. There's no evidence that any of what we would call variants of high consequence, ones that are able to cause serious disease in fully vaccinated people have emerged. And it, it's a very hard thing for a virus to do because it's not just that they have to evade the antibodies generated by the vaccine. It's also the T-cell immunity. And it seems that T-cell immunity 
which is a whole different arm of your immune system, is very robust. And when faced with the variant, even if it can get around the antibodies, the T cells prevent the infection from progressing to serious illness or needing hospitalization. And I think that's uh, almost like a biological fact that it's going to be a very hard constraint for that virus to get around. Yes, it's biologically plausible, but do I think it's going to happen? No. But I think the, the other point is, is that even from an individual perspective, we have a significant proportion of the U.S. population that is not vaccinated, and those variants are going to be able to, uh, to infect them. Those variants are going to be able to cause serious disease. Even if hospitals aren't in crisis, there's still an individual threat to health from COVID-19. So that's why we want to get vaccine, uh, vaccine rates as high as possible, even when the public health emergency aspect of this pandemic is over in this country. But President Biden has the goal, and he laid out this goal weeks ago, to have 70% of American adults have received one shot since the 4th of July. We're just over 60% right now. Do you think we're going to make it? It's going to be very challenging. It's very difficult to now find people who want to be vaccinated. We've kind of gotten through everybody that wants to be vaccinated. We've made it very convenient. You can get vaccinated in the subway in New York City. You can get vaccinated at strip bars in Las Vegas. You can get vaccinated on the beach. You get free beer, free donuts. You get lottery tickets, so you get bonds in West Virginia. Oh. A lot of incentives are there, so it's becoming hard. I don't know that we're going to actually reach that goal, but to me, I think it's important to strive for it and to continue, even if we don't meet that goal of 4th of July, to still continue to push forward with vaccines. Because the more this population in, in, in our country is vaccinated, the more resilient we're going to be, the less disruptive COVID-19 is going to be, and the quicker we can kind of put all of this behind us. In addition to those prizes, in some places, you also do get protection from something that a lot of people really don't want. Uh, I wonder, Dr. Adalja, just in the last minute we have, and then you're going to come back with us after we, we do some news, what from a public health perspective, messaging perspective, seems to be working to get those people who have held out in the last 30 seconds? The, be the best message is the fact that these vaccines improve your personal life, just as you said, that this protects you from uh, a serious infectious disease. It makes you no longer a threat to others, and it makes the virus no longer a threat to you, and it allows you to get your, your life back. And I think that's the best way to message this. And it took some time for the CDC to actually get on board with that message, but that's the true one, and that's the correct one. Yeah, I feel like I'm a superhero. I've said this before, but uh, you know, I feel totally comfortable doing things that for the last 14 months I was not comfortable doing. Let's get right back to Dr. Amish Adalja, senior scholar and infectious disease physician at the Center for Health Security at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He joins us on the phone from Pittsburgh. Uh, we just heard from your colleague, Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo, about how important it is to get those vaccines in arms as soon as possible, Dr. Adalja. And one reason that uh, we like to talk to you each and every week and as much as possible really is that you're out there uh, each week on the front lines still and you have been throughout the pandemic visiting patients and we've been able to get updates from you about what it's been like throughout the pandemic and I wonder now what you're seeing with the coronavirus but also with other types of viruses that, that could be flaring up right now. So with coronavirus right now, it's very low, and I work clinically in the Pittsburgh area, and the hospitals are in good shape, and the people that we are seeing come in with coronavirus are those who are unvaccinated. Hmm. Uh, it's largely become a disease of the unvaccinated now, and it's not something where we see ICUs kind of busting at the seams or very many patients at all. Uh, so it's a really good situation we're in with COVID. But what we are starting to see are other respiratory viruses kick back up. Other coronaviruses, not COVID-19, but others, uh, RSV, the CDC just released a, a health alert about RSV increasing in the South. That's a, a childhood viral illness. So 
we are seeing some normalcy returning to our uh, to the kind of viral ecology, where as people stop social distancing, as people uh, put away their masks for good, for good reasons because they're fully vaccinated, you're going to start seeing some of our other old you know well-known pathogens starting to come back and. And we have to be prepared for those as well. Remind me, RSV, is that something that uh, kids can get vaccinated against? No, RSV is not something kids can get vaccinated against. This is something that puts a lot of babies in the hospital, lots of young kids. It's uh, Often for older people, it might be more of a bronchitis type of uh, symptoms, but it's something that kind of plagues children every year. But we're starting to see that kick back up. And, uh, and I suspect you're going to start seeing colds. People have been going a year without having any colds. Those are going to start coming back. And I've increasingly seen people who have viruses, who have symptoms that, you know, six months ago I thought would definitely be COVID, but they're testing negative for COVID because they're likely other viruses now that are just uh, uh, way chomping at the bit basically to get back to, to the work that they do every year. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's not, it's not good news by any means, but it is one measure of, of a return to normalcy, right? Yeah, I, I don't think it's, it's not good news. Obviously, we don't, these are disruptive things. People get hospitalized with them, but it's something that, you know, in the past, we, it, it was very hard to even see any other viruses because COVID was so dominant and dominating the whole viral landscape that I think I took care of one flu influenza patient during this whole, uh, this pandemic. That's very, very rare. So this tells you that, you know, COVID is receding, that this is a real signal that we're seeing with cases dropping and people getting back to life. And, Part of getting back to life is dealing with the, the respiratory viruses that we deal with every year. And uh, eventually COVID is going to be one of those respiratory viruses that we deal with every year. Yeah, that's that's what we do keep hearing from experts like yourself. Dr. Adalja, you, you, you mentioned uh, what kids are, are, are your, what kids are being infected with, what you're seeing when you do your rounds. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering back to coronavirus about how we should be thinking about vaccinating kids, especially those under 12. As we as we do know, there are trials happening in the United States to test the efficacy and safety of coronavirus vaccines in kids. Do you expect that that those will get approved for emergency use authorization? I do expect that they will get approved, likely at a lower dose. What's going on right now is that the clinical, the clinical trials, there will be uh, data coming from there on both safety and efficacy, and I suspect that the FDA and the CDC will, will recommend that for children. I think you know, it's important to remember that you have to do trials in different age groups because as you get to those younger age groups, the risk of severe disease from COVID-19 becomes very, very small, and the risk of transmission of COVID-19 from small children is also low. So there is a, the, the benefits of the vaccine are more blunted in a six-year-old than they are in a 60-year-old. So that's why we have to do special trials. We have to have special discussions about the dosing and all of that. And I think it's going to progress, and, and I think we'll get there eventually. Uh, the impact is going to be more so on getting children back into activities in a safer manner, because mostly because of the adults being kind of fearful of, of COVID-19, rather than actually like a huge epidemiological impact you're going to see when we vaccinate below the age of 12. When do you expect a date that we'll, we'll start to see this, just in the last 10 seconds? I've heard rumors that this likely will be before Thanksgiving, okay. uh, when, when we'll see that. Dr. Amish Adalja, Senior Scholar and Infectious Disease Physician at the Center for Health Security at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He joins us on the phone from Pittsburgh. The Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health It is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Well, a story in the new issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine required national correspondent Josh Green to head south to Florida, where he spoke to many of those who've been lured south by sunshine. 
golf and money. A lot of them, the former president's allies and hanger-ons, and they've formed an alternate universe that revolves around none other than Mar-a-Lago. Joining me now is Josh Green, national correspondent at Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Also, Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He's here with me in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, Joel, there was the question of what the post-Trump president, post-presidency Trump would look like. And it turns out that he's still very much active and a kingmaker. I kind of don't think anybody saw uh, what's what 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 this now looks like coming, um, and that's why when Josh uh, mentioned that he wanted to do this story, uh, we were like, "Yes, yes, get on a plane." And he goes, "I'm not vaccinated. I can't do it yet." And this was obviously months ago. And we were like, "Get vaccinated as quickly as you can." And he was like, "I'm trying." And when he finally got vaccinated, it all worked out, and we got him down there. Um, Josh, tell us about what you found in South Florida. Yeah, well, I mean, basically, I went down to kind of solve a, a mystery that a lot of people have wondered about, which was, you know, after after January 6th, a lot of people wondered, will Trump maintain his grip on the party or will he kind of dwindle into insignificance? A lot of Republicans I talked to back then thought he was just going to kind of go away and be forgotten about, but he hasn't been. And so I went down to Florida to kind of investigate his world. And what I found was, um, you know, Trump isn't like any typical ex-president. He, he really lives down in Mar-a-Lago, kind of like I describe him as a foreign monarch cast into exile. Uh, because not only is Trump down in Mar-a-Lago, but a, a big contingent of the Republican Party, uh, including his own family and, and kind of ancillary Fox News figures, have moved down there with him. So it's sort of like, you know, an administration out of power that has nonetheless um, managed to tighten its grip on the Republican Party at a time when many people thought after the riots, uh, and the deadly violence on the Capitol that the party might move on from Trump. Yeah, well, I think there's probably no better example of the party not moving on from Trump than the physical moving of people uh, from parts of Florida to, to other parts of Florida. You spoke to Eddie Vale, a Democratic strategist, who said, think about how bizarre that is, referring to Ivanka Trump, Sean Hannity, Neil Cavuto, Kevin McCarthy, uh, all people who have made their way down to this part of Florida. He said, it's like if Rachel Maddow and the Pod Save America guys all bought condos in Chicago because they wanted to be close to Barack Obama. How does this represent the future of the, of the Republican Party? I mean, I think what it shows symbolically is that Trump is still the center of gravity and that he isn't going to see the spotlight. I mean, one of the remarkable things about Trump's post-presidency that I, I think we don't really step back and, and think about is that if you look at the last two one-term presidents, you know, Jimmy Carter, uh, George H.W. Bush, they were immediately branded as losers by their own party, mm. which, which was eager to move on from them and did so. And yet Trump, even though lost re-election by 7 million votes, has managed to maintain a grip not just on the party, I mean, not just on kind of the institutional party, um, but on right-wing media, on the hearts and minds of activists. Um, you know, All you have to do is look at House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who criticized Trump in the wake uh, of the insurrection, going back uh, two weeks later to Mar-a-Lago to visit and try to raise money and kind of bend the knee to Trump to see that you know Republican politicians they, they're not going to stand up for him to him. And not only that, if you look at the direction of Republican policy, you know across the country in states across the country there are new voter restriction laws in the works. All of this is a reflection of Trump's influence, continuing influence on the party. Josh, you spoke to uh, 
almost everybody I I could think of that you could that you could have quoted in the story you did, and I'm just wondering, you know, everybody from from Sean Spicer who's down there, like on down, who was your most favorite person to speak to who gave you your most favorite insight? You know, I th- I think that the guy I like most, and he's a key character with a memorable scene in the piece, is a former White House spokesman named Hogan Gidley, who uh, was hanging out uh, shirtless uh, poolside at one of the hot Trump hotels down there. Uh, you know, Hogan had done a swing through there to raise money for a pro-Trump group that he started, but he really explained the kind of sociology and taxonomy of the extended Trump universe. And I came away understanding that it isn't just that politicians are afraid of Trump, it's that the entire Republican consulting infrastructure, at least a large part of it, remains dependent on Trump for their livelihood. They can't go and get jobs at Uber and Amazon like Obama administration officials did. They're, They're sort of considered radioactive, I think especially after January 6th. And so they've gone out and started conservative groups to push things like voter restrictions um, that are very Trumpian. And in doing so, they've kind of created a very real power structure that allows Trump to maintain his hold over the party. Uh, and as I, as I say in the piece, uh, position himself as the front runner in 2024 if that's what he decides to do. The, the line that um, Gidley gave, gave you while, uh, while drinking what beverage? What beverage was that, Josh? Uh, virgin, virgin berry spritzer. It sounds like a soda. To, he wanted to emphasize that it was virgin, not alcoholic, because it was like at 10 in the morning. Um, so, so let the record show that, that Gidley wasn't drinking alcohol. Um, but it was a very delicious $16 virgin berry spritzer. But the, the, the line I just, the, the, or the quote that he gave you, it was so memorable to me, but you never take your line out of the water while the fish are still biting. And I just like, I got it. I got it when you, when you did that. So, so, and, uh, and that really sums it up. That's 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 what all the that's what all these Republicans consultants are doing. They understand that their livelihood still flows from Trump, and so they're they're responding accordingly. What does this portend for for twenty twenty two and then twenty twenty four? Well, for twenty twenty two, it's clear. You know, I, I, when I was down there, I spoke to everybody from former staffers to uh, big billionaire Trump donors to consultants, and everyone, for their own parochial reason, is really depending on Trump to uh, bring out the Republican vote in twenty twenty two. They all want they all want Republicans to win back the House of Representatives, which I think is is, is quite likely. But they understand. Um, they need Trump to pull out his voters. So they have a kind of an instrumental use for Trump that I think helps keep mm. him front and center. Uh, the interesting dilemma for them is most of these people, I think, did not do not want Trump to run in 2024 um, because they don't think he can win. And they're sort of stuck because nobody really has a convincing story right. for how they can use him next year. Uh, and then get rid of them before 2024. Well, it is a fantastic feature that is in the new issue of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine. It's also today's Bloomberg Big Take story. You can read more at Bloomberg.com slash Businessweek. That's Josh Green, national correspondent at Bloomberg Businessweek. And Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek, with me in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. This is Bloomberg Businessweek with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Well, in the FOMO economy, everyone is making money but you. Whether you're into meme stocks, crypto, or real estate, buying seems driven by as much by anxiety, by hope. Even professional investors who know better can't resist getting in 
on the action. It's the cover story for the international cover of the new issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine, and you can read it at Bloomberg.com slash Business Week. Joining me now from Paris is Lionel Laurent, columnist at Bloomberg Opinion. Lionel, it's so great to have you back with us. What is the FOMO economy? So essentially, uh, obviously, the ingredient is the fear of missing out. Yes. Uh, psychological belief that uh, we are missing out on something. Everyone's getting wealthy apart from us. But it's becoming economic because it is no longer just restricted to specific markets like cryptocurrencies. I mean, there are investors who are uh, flipping uh, homes. If you speak to bankers and executives, they're able to, if they have a company, they're able to list it at a huge valuation with no revenue, and that is rippling out as their advisors, who are supposed to be the experts, who have studied hard and worked hard to tell people how to run businesses, and are completely at a loss as to explain what works, what is the business model that works, and how do you make money. So the, the result is that everyone is down to, this, to the same tune, and it is, it's all about the stories that we tell each other. I'm getting rich. How are you getting rich? Let's all trade. So it's a kind of weird uh, contagion that's happening with a lot of different ingredients, and it's uh, sweeping the world economy. Yeah, those ingredients include cryptocurrency. It's the way you open your piece. It also includes meme stocks such as AMC, GameStop, Wendy's, uh, GEO Group. The list goes on depending on the day. And then also even housing. I mean, reading through this this story, this column, I was thinking to myself, this sounds exactly like conversations that I've been having with my friends over the last few months when they say, hey, should I buy Bitcoin? Should I get in on meme stocks? And, and what is going on with the housing market? Of course, I can't offer them any advice and I have no idea what's going to happen. But what do you find about what's going to happen if there are signs of any sort of asset bubbles here that have been similar to asset bubbles in times past? So there's a, there's a couple of things happening on, on housing. I think it really is that kind of anxiety that says, um, I am always going to miss out on housing. Every time there is a supposed opportunity, the prices keep going up. And if I don't buy now, I will be priced out. There is anxiety. There is greed as well. Um, in, in New Zealand, of all countries, uh, there are people who already own homes, one or two, who are now buying uh, three, four, five. There is just this need to keep accumulating because it is seen as a bet that can only work out in the long run. Remember that young people as well, coming into the job market, they see only a long future ahead of them. They're not convinced at all that if they uh, study and work hard, they will get a normal, any kind of normal uh, retirement. So they are, so they are swept along uh, too. And housing is the most basic need, a, a roof over your head. It's what we all dream of in retirement. So all of these things are being compressed in a world of low rates and excess savings and post uh, reopening uh, euphoria. It is, it is affecting everything and housing is definitely part of it. How does it end? Very good question. So uh, there's, a, there's a couple of possibilities, right? I mean, use the word bubble. I, I see what's happening now as more of a, more of a cycle. So we've seen uh, oh. gold rushes in the past. We've seen dot-com boobs. Um, these things can have a long uh, time lag before they change. Some people think there is a genuine turn in the, for example, the inflation cycle. If yields uh, start to rise, then all these moonshot investments don't start to look uh, so great in the same uh, uniform way. Uh, Otherwise, I'm afraid it really has to be a question of trying to find that middle ground between the really extreme stories of getting rich and maybe the stories that seem boring today. Like if I said to you, just put a little money aside every month and, and put it in a mutual fund, you may have to reassess and think yourself about your own life and think, well, if I build my entire life around FOMO, just how sustainable that is. So I would say it's a mix of 
natural cycles, uh, the you know the, the the growth of the economy and how it performs, sort of fundamentals, but also human psychology. Just just how contagious are those stories going to be? Yeah, and as you point out, which I love in in your piece, you say incidentally, actual lottery tickets have also grown in in popularity during this time. I wonder about wealth management because it's something that you touch on. The experts, the advisors, the people who used to march into to boardrooms and and know exactly how a company should spend their money. They don't necessarily have all the answers like they used to. No, and, and this is why it is an economic phenomenon, because it is, it is touching all of these uh, industries um, that uh, sort of might have been seen to be permanent or immutable or, or, or long term. And this is why it was so interesting to, to write this story, because you're speaking to professionals. You're not speaking to day traders. You're not speaking to the retail crowd. You are speaking to people who have qualifications and who are supposed to know what to say. And all they can say is, um, well, just wait and see. The cycle may turn. Um, try and build a, a constructive portfolio. But you just have, again, on the FOMO front, you do not want to appear dumb in front of your client. And that, I'm afraid, is what a lot of these advisors are worried they, they are looking like today, which is uh, dumb in front of this uh, reality of the market. Just in 10 seconds, advice if you have FOMO. Uh, try and find something else to, to, to balance it, uh, <laughs> however, however you can. <laughs> Maybe get outside and, and go for a run, although that could cause you to think about what you're missing out on. Lionel Laurent is columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, joining us on the phone from Paris. Lionel's story is the international cover of the new issue of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine. You can read it at Bloomberg.com slash Businessweek. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It's the drive to the close. We are just a little over 10 minutes away from the close of equity markets here on this Thursday, June 10th. Joining us now is Hillary Kramer, president and chief investment officer at ANG Capital Research. She's also the author of Game Changer Investing, How to Profit from Tomorrow's Billion Dollar Trends. She joins us on the phone from Florida. Hillary, it's great to have you back with us. How are you? Tim, I'm very good. It's really exciting that uh, COVID seems to be behind us here in Florida. Let's just hope that Delta variant doesn't hit. Yeah, uh, look, I hear you. And it certainly is a different story playing out in the rest of the world. But we are starting to feel a lot different here in New York as well. Hillary, I want to start just by talking about inflation. And then I do want to get to uh, the many stocks that, that, that you want to talk about. Uh, but we can't ignore the CPI data that we got earlier today. And I, I find it just fascinating that both the equity market and the bond market really shrugging off the idea that this could be permanent inflation. The market was up simply because of that, because the stock market loved that the bond market, as you say, Tim, really didn't freak out. It just, you know, felt like that was normal. It was priced in. But I think that there's been some second thoughts because here later in the day, industrials, materials, financials started to lag. So this may start to register and the wage inflation is a significant 
problem for the margins on so many companies. We may see some major rotations. Uh, companies like Walmart, which are great portfolio staples, but have 1% razor-thin margins, as long as they're paying people $17 an hour to stack shelves, which I think is great because people should make money and shouldn't be working and, like, starving and making ends meet. Of course. But it's going to impact the stock price because the earnings are going to be impacted. And uh, and it's just a tough time in the stock market to find good opportunities. Well, where are you finding some of those good opportunities, Hillary? I want to talk and just start with Chewy because they're reporting after the bell today. Chewy is a great company. It had its year. You know, I was on top of Chewy starting at $23. Um, <laughs> and the stock now at one point above 100 and we could see a big jump today upwards. Chewy's still doing great. The humanization of pets. There's been losses. We're not going to see um, an earnings per share positive until the fourth quarter of this year. And uh, and it's very similar to Etsy. The hmm. story, you know, rotates. You know, suddenly now, you know, then the story becomes, especially on the Reddit trade, uh, the stocks like the Etsy's and the Chewy's um, have been uh, tossed aside. But I'm finding opportunities, and I'm trying to find small caps, but that are value plays. We found one company, Tenant, who's done a lot of work on TNC. It's scrubbers, but scrubbers for the floor, not for the internet. Someone thought it was for the internet. <laughs> scrubbers, vacuums, these massive $60,000 uh, pieces of equipment for arenas and stadiums, and Walmart and Costco and Sam's Club, and Tenant Filter Replacement Parts been around for over 100 years, 1.1% dividend yield. And what I'm waiting for, it's a $1.1 billion company. Some middle market private equity fund is going to start buying this thing up and we'll probably take it out, you know, because that's what they're all looking for. Everyone's searching for any opportunity where, and at this point, if they can make a double, and there's so many private equity spinoff funds where to some funds, this might be nothing, $1.1 billion to another, it might be, you know, the king's feast. Yeah. And Look, you make a, Hillary, you make a really good point because... Because I, I did see, and I mentioned this before, I saw a tweet in recent weeks that said it's a really good time to be selling something because there is so much money out there. I'm wondering, though, what that tells you about where we are potentially in the market cycle. We're overstretched. We are, as long as the Fed doesn't, you know, start to do what they need to do to control inflation, um, raising rates, we're going to be fine. But there's going to be a tipping point something and we never know what it is but we know it's coming is going to bring this market down and there's so many traders on margin out there there's so many individual retail traders we could see uh, like a mass exodus and some trampling that could be really bad so everyone should keep their powder dry and get ready hmm. for the market to go down and look at it as a buying well, opportunity when 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 is it um, realistic look nobody has a crystal ball if if, <laughs> if anyone did uh that would be game changing but um what is a realistic timeline that you're thinking of one of these downturns where you could take advantage of that dry powder it could happen when tax legislation actually is enacted. That could be the major tipping point that starts some funds or some people 
selling. It could be something geopolitical, or as we started this conversation, it could be this Delta variant that's closing down one-third of the ports in China, and which we're going to see more of a holdup in semiconductors and all sorts of exports, which are going to make, which are going to make equipment and manufacturing a lot more difficult to fulfill. And, um, and, but, but I still think, that, again, Tim, there are opportunities like in biotech, for example, ASCO, which is the big oncology meeting that happens once a year, was last week virtual. And ASCO had some really incredible oncology news that came out of it. And oncology has really been, uh, the oncology biotech stocks have relatively been ignored. The, the one that came out that's the biggest favorite is IOVANCE, IOVA, mm-hmm. that had some really solid data on melanoma, immunotherapy, and there finally could be true, true, you know, large-scale applicability instead of chemotherapy to do this turning cells against the bad cells and, and your body fighting your own war. But we think IOVANCE, actually Goldman Sachs says it's going to be more than 350% increase in the next 12 months. Now, for an analyst to say that, there's got to be some real conviction around it. But the stock, uh, you know, in the 20s has been over $100 a share and that's the way biotech can go. But eyes are going to go off of, uh, you know, away from the vaccine stocks. Um, another one, optimize mm-hmm. RX, OPRX. That's one. Right. That, um, you know, and that's the one that sends the messages uh, for pharmaceuticals it, and prescriptions. Hillary, we only have a couple yeah. minutes left, so I wanted to make sure to touch on fintech because it's a category that is, is incredibly hot right now. I feel like I'm seeing ads for fintech companies that I've never even heard of that have multi-billion dollar valuations, at least uh, by venture capitalists. Um, where are you seeing the opportunities with uh, publicly traded companies? Fintech, the best way to go would be keep it simple. Don't go into any complexity. You're better off with the PayPal's of the world and let them enter into the fintech arena. They have Zoom. They have Venmo. They have the power. $315 billion market cap, P-Y-P-L, and continuing to grow. Fintech is just a word that everybody's chasing after. In many ways, I think fintech is no different than Google already has. Um, you know, the, the Google suite and people able to um, make changes on a document on the Google system. So in many ways, it's overrated. Look at how fast everyone was able to adjust when we had only a few days to close down states and the entire country. Uh, and we didn't need these fintech companies to do it. Uh, Hillary Kramer is the president and chief investment officer at ANG Capital Research. She's also the author of Game Changer Investing, How to Profit from Tomorrow's Billion Dollar Trends. She joins us on the phone from Florida. Hillary, thank you so much for joining us again. It is always great to have you. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.